Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth podcast. I am your host and absolute supreme podcast being Dan Milner. I wear many hats. I'm a creative evangelist for Blurb. I'm senior co-editor for AG23. I'm an uncle. I'm a brother. I'm a son. And I'm just about to change the ink in my fountain pen once again. Now, for those of you pen geeks out there, and I hope there's a lot of them here, because if you're going to geek out on something, it could be cycling, it could be photography, it could be fly fishing. Pens sort of underlie all these other geeky fields, because you got to write about what it is you're doing, right? I'm currently using a Monami, and I've got Olinka olive green ink cartridges, five pack, and it is now officially empty. I'm down to my last one. However, I have in reserve two versions of blue that I've never used before. This pen seems to be pretty good. It's dirt cheap. I bought it as part of a five pack from Jet Pens, five like uh, fountain pen starter kit. Problem was I liked all five. Uh, Don't know why I, I basically solidified this as my choice, but I did. But we have a crazy week here uh, on the podcast Man, it's busy. I did two more films yesterday. I'm on the hook for another one today. I've got at least three or four more in the pipeline, and there's a lot happening with uh, not just Blur, but AG and a bunch of other stuff. But before we go any further, I need to say a couple of things about some very important matters. My opinion is just one opinion, and I can only comment on my personal experience and what I have learned through 51 years of living. But um, first, first and foremost point, before we get to who this podcast is for, before the hero, before the question of the week, and before the points, I need to say a couple of things. Number one is COVID is not gone. I'm starting to see and hear people act and behave as if it's gone because we're, quote unquote, opening the economy and people are going. I don't know if you know this or not, but we now have, as of this morning, 14 states with a rise in cases, more new cases than at any point during the pandemic. So this is nowhere near being done. And we cannot act like this has gone away. And we cannot act like this is a lull between the first and second wave, because the first wave is not over. The math and the numbers are there. So The reason I say this is I've seen people start to get lazy. I've seen people sort of feel embarrassed about wearing a mask, or I've also driven by restaurants here in Santa Fe that are absolutely packed. There is no way that they're at 50% capacity. They are way more than that. I've seen people walking into these packed restaurants without masks, and it just seems like a monumentally bad idea. As Americans, I can only speak to being an American and living here. We have to be patient. We have to be, we have to not be narcissistic. We have to not be selfish. And um, wait a minute, did I phrase that wrong? We can't be selfish. We cannot be narcissistic. We cannot be entitled. Or we are going to uh, absolutely blow up our summer, fall, and into next year. So the more, the more idiotic we behave now, the more we're going to pay later. And it's just disheartening to look around and see people starting to get slack. And there's a sense of entitlement here in America that I'm sure is, is present elsewhere. Uh, when this whole thing started, I called a friend of mine who would be in a career that would give insight into what this pandemic would look like. And his quote to me was, we have a major problem because of the entitlement in the United States. So we have to be smart. Stay home if you can. Be responsible, wear a mask, keep your distance, wash your hands, do everything right. Otherwise, we are going to, as a collective, pay. Okay, who is this podcast for? It's for anyone who cried, and I don't mean just cried, I mean sobbed during the movie Urban Cowboy. Because I not only saw Urban Cowboy when I was in middle school, I read the book, and I'm not joking about that. So I grew up in the country, Urban Cowboy was like our godfather, it was our Gone with the Wind. This was like, holy cow, Smoking the Bandit and Urban Cowboy for a little hit kid from Indiana was like, hey, they finally made a movie for us. So Urban Cowboy, if you sobbed and cried when Bud and Sissy temporarily broke up, then welcome aboard. Come on in. This podcast is for you. Our hero of the week, yes, Canada, I love you. I want dual citizenship. I'm just going to throw it out there, whatever I have to do. If I have to, if I have to honor my hero of the week for the next 48 months with Canadians. I will. And I did last week. And this week we're going again because I was kind of surprised by this one. Mr. Neil Young. Neil Young is from Ontario. I did not know that. I thought Neil Young was an American. Um, This is one interesting boy. That's all I can say. Anyone who can play harmonica, play guitar, sing, and do anything else at one time is a genius. Uh, Neil Young, I once got dragged to a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert. My wife uh, uh, knows one of the band members, and that's her all-time favorite band. 
I was a little, I'm about 10 years younger than she is. And I was, the Crosby, Stills, CS, CSNY was not like the premier band in my life. The premier band, band in my life was Guns N' Roses and The Cult um, and Miles Davis, for whatever reason. Uh, Smokey Robinson, too. Love, love Smokey. But I got dragged to this Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert at the Staples Center in L.A. And it was a zoo. It was like, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And we have the world's worst seats. To get to the seat, I almost thought I was going to fall to my death. They were so far up and so steep. The guy next to me was hammered, just hammered. And he was one of those affectionate, um, loving hammered who just wanted to share how much he loved the band with everyone else around him for three and a half hours. And I was literally contemplating pushing him to his death off of the chair because I couldn't stand it anymore. And I looked around and my wife had suddenly disappeared, the one who dragged me to the concert. And about 10 minutes later, I looked down in the front of the stage on the floor in the middle and there's my wife who's abandoned me in the rafters with Mr. Lovefest. And I was like, okay, I'm pissed. But one, my point with this is that anytime Neil Young played on a song, the Staples Center went insane in a way that it didn't with the other folks, even though the other guys, I think CS, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is just legendary band. But Neil is a special dude, and he's Canadian. And did I mention my love of Canada, of all things? I mean, who want, doesn't want to kill some darts with Neil? Uh, I do. And um, maybe someday I can have him over to my, uh, my casita in Canada. Wink, wink, Canada. Government, if you're listening, Justin, um, I have to prove that I'm a li- not a liability and that I have some sort of skill. I'm working on it. That's all I'll say. Okay, question of the week uh, is, did the positive of Lance Armstrong outweigh the negative. And no, I did not see the special on Lance Armstrong. It's probably not going to cover a whole lot that I don't already know. I will see it eventually. I don't have ESPN. I don't have the ESPN app. I'm not going to get the ESPN app. I hardly ever watch ESPN. I don't even have cable TV. So no, I did not see it, but I would and I will when I can. Uh, But I'm pretty familiar with the whole Lance story, not to mention all the other cyclists around him. I do love cycling, as you know. But a lot of times, you know, it's popular to pile on, and he did everything wrong, right? He did. Uh, But there's a couple of things that get lost in the shuffle with him, especially with people who do not cycle. So as we know now, 99% of the people that were around him at the time were doping, right? So it wasn't an even playing field. It was a completely uneven playing field because everybody involved was scamming in some way, shape, or form. Not everyone, but the people who were competing, the guys at the back of the pack who would blow themselves up every day and... And, you know, the domestiques, they're not necessarily all of those people were doping, but we do know now that the majority of people who were competing at that very front of the peloton with Lance, those guys were, were doped to the gills, right? And they've been doped for many, many, many years before Lance came along. In fact, my favorite rider of all time had a nickname back in the 70s and 80s that was basically a hint at drugs, right? That was his nickname. So this has been going on for a long time. But a lot of people who don't cycle you know, look at somebody like Lance and they go, wow, you know, what a complete a-hole. And, you know, he ruined the sanctity of the sport and whatever. Personally, I don't really care. There were two things about Lance that I thought were overwhelmingly positive and then something that gets lost in the shuffle. So the two things that were overwhelmingly pos- uh, positive was the ca- money he raised for cancer research. Now you could say, well, it was based on a false premise, but who cares? We got the money. We need it for cancer research. Number two is he got people excited about getting on bicycles, unlike anyone I have ever seen in my life. And that, to me, is the single most important thing of the whole Lance Armstrong story is that he got people on. He got asses on butts on bikes. And that is all we are after at this point because that's the only thing that's going to bring change in terms of cycling in, in the United States and really around the world. He got people excited. Now, there were people that hated him for sure. The other part, the last thing I want to touch on before we get to the points, is that Lance was uh, an incredible cyclist in terms of bike handling and in terms of skill and dedication and time on the bike. Lance trained his ass off. So yes, he was doping, as were most of his competitors, but I don't think you are ever going to find anyone who wanted it more and trained harder than Lance. And that gets overlooked in people saying, oh, he was doped. Well, You know, doping is not like you're going to cut your time on a stage in half. We're talking about micro doses of improvement and recovery. You know, that's a huge part of it is how your body recovers when you're taking things like testosterone. Whereas, and man, would I love to get my hands on some testosterone. I would take all of this now. At 51 out, I I rode 12 miles this morning because I got up not knowing that it was 37 degrees in Santa Fe 
I got out on my bike and about a quarter mile down the road, I was like, why am I, why am I freezing? My hands were numb. My face was bright red. The front of my legs was were bright red. My feet were freezing. It was 37, 12 miles in. I was like, I'm done. I turned around, came home. I would take EPO all night if it would help me on a ride. I would, I would basically put testosterone in my water bottle if it would help. So I think this is a legitimate question. Did the positive of Lance Armstrong outweigh the negative or vice versa? And I do think if you don't know anything about cycling or this story, you have to realize the time and, and dedication that all of these guys who doped put in because it's not human to ride uphill at 25 miles an hour. It's just not, not realistic or 20 miles an hour or whatever. Their average pace on these routes are just simply staggering. But anyway, it's a question that's bounced around in my head because I do love to see people get on bikes. I love to see people who think that they can't or they're scared or they're unsure or they look at a bike like something that children do and that they're an adult. And as an adult, as an American, you demand a car, you deserve a car, blah, blah, blah. I love to see that change and that, and people get on bikes and go, God, I haven't done this in a long time. This is really great. And Lance got a lot of people on bikes. So I will get off my soapbox right now. All right. So first point of the week is about Black Lives Matter. I haven't really said anything about this over the past few weeks on the podcast. I don't really feel it's my place to say much about this. I can only comment on this in terms of my personal experience, um, being around things like police departments all over the country. I had my first interaction with police departments in the 1980s when I bought a police scanner while I was still living in San Antonio, and I would drive around in the middle of the night with a police scanner and encounter the police and the fire department, etc. And over the years, I've been around uh, all kinds of law enforcement agencies. I've been around Secret Service. I've been around ATF, the Border Patrol, the FBI, uh, police departments in San Antonio, Houston, Austin, Dallas, Phoenix, LA, a little bit here in New Mexico, but not much. And so I've had, uh, I've had my share of odd encounters. And it's been so I guess in a nutshell, the way that I can sum this up is I am 100% behind police reform. I think we absolutely need it. I think even my friends who are very pro authority, pro police will acknowledge and most of them do that there definitely needs to be police reform. It has gone on far too long. It's been far too ingrained in part of our culture and society here. There is an omerta speaking of cycling and police departments. They do share something in common. There's very much an, an omerta of a code of silence. You know, even the good police officers can't report the bad ones because if you do, you're transferred, you're shunned, your basically career is never going to advance. It is that profound and that deep. I have personally seen multiple police departments do, thing to mem do things to members of the public that you simply would not believe. Beat them, club them, gas them, hold them at gunpoint, arrest them illegally, detain them illegally. I've seen it over and over and over again. Um, and I know that might sound surprising to some of you. I grew up in a household where we were taught to respect the police and that they were always the good, the good guys. And there are a ton of great police out there. There really are because I've, again, run into them. I've had them assist me. I've had great conversations. I've watched them do amazing things. But I've also seen and witnessed the flip side. And it's pretty astounding every time. And, and what you realize when you're in the middle of that is they do it because they know they can get away with it. There is no penalty. Even if you're written up and you're reported, as we've noticed in a lot of these uh, recent cases where these people have multiple, multiple complaints against them, where there's smoke, typically where there's smoke, there's fire. When someone has 17, 18, 20, 40 complaints against them, it's sort of a systematic rule of like, hey, I'm going to do what I can. I know that I can get away with. I've had police come in my house in the middle of the night for no reason, put their hand in my chest and shove me backwards, then shine a flashlight in my face and laugh because they knew they could get away with it. I've had them uh, punch me, club me, gas me, kick me um, for sport. I've, had, I've, I've watched them beat up civilians. I've, I've seen police department beat up civilians while the sheriff department watched and then watched as the sheriff department looked at the police department and said, you know, you guys are a bunch of idiots. They basically, the exact quote was, real mature guys, while they stood by and watched him beat a businessman in, in, uh, in a city who was on his way to work with his briefcase and a cup of coffee. And they just did it because there was no one around to stop him. So we definitely need police reform. I do not know what disbanding or, or, dis, or unfunding a police department looks like. I don't think I've ever seen that, so I can't really comment on that. 
But, you know, racism in America is very much a part of our culture. It doesn't matter where you live or who you are or really what your skin color is. It's bad, and it's something that we have to address. So I think that's about all I can really say on that. And um, I just hope that this will collectively bring us together. I think a lot of what's happening in our culture and society today is dehumanizing us and is driving us apart. Things like technology, social media in particular, are built to, to drive us apart. And I hope that we never lose touch with the human side of who we are and the fact that we are basically a, a one enormous collective of people. And the sooner we begin to behave like that and act like that and understand the power of that, I think we'll be better off. And so my fingers are crossed. Okay, part number two. Point two, let's just recap. COVID is not over. That was our pre-point of the day. This podcast is for anyone who sobbed during Urban Cowboy when Bud and Sissy broke up. Our hero is Neil Young and just really Canadians in general. I don't care who you are. If you're Canadian, write in. You're my hero. Question is, did the positive of Lance outweigh the negative? And I'm very curious what your thoughts are on that. Number one is my little, my quick rant on, on the, uh, not rant, my quick just take on what's happening with Black Lives Matter and the protest movement. Point number two is I just watched the Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix and um, talk about terrifying. It's pretty bad. And I think the Jeff, this is kind of a weird connection here, but I think a lot of what's happening with literally with the protest movement that's happening, with COVID that's happening, uh, with our society in general here in the United States, <clears throat> I think you're seeing, you're beginning to see system failure. You have cities in America who are literally on the brink of failing as cities, with law enforcement, with healthcare, with education, with funding, they're on the brink, right? We haven't seen that in my lifetime. Even after 08, there were still, there were cities that were in trouble, but not like they are now. And you're seeing systematic, system-wide failure. Corruption is rampant, etc. So you watch the Epstein doc, and you see the behavior of the police, of the courts, of the government, of the financial institutions. And you realize two things. One, the level of corruption is so far beyond what most people imagine. And all of these industries are connected. And the powers that be, the elite, have the control and the power. And Epstein was a guy who just said, I've got enough money and enough power. I'm never going to get caught doing this. But when you watch the doc, the thing that jumped out at me was the corruption on the government side of what happened when they tried to prosecute him and the local police department was trying to do their thing, which I think they did well. And the reporters, the local reporter for the Miami Herald, she's the one that really put this story on the map. And, uh, you know, she was a local journalist. The case, this basically, this story was dead, and she resurrected it. She got the witnesses to testify. This is what brought this case back. She deserves all the credit in the world. And you realize that they're trying to do the right thing, and the government is corrupted. And the government is saying, well, we're not going to do this. We're going to do things in this case that no one has ever seen before in terms of lies and secrecy. And it happens. And Americans, for whatever reason, you know, we're taught as kids that we're the good guys and we don't do these kind of things. Well, we do and we have and we probably always will. And if you know your history, then you know that this has been very much a part of, of how society works is the wealthy, the wealthy 1% and the elites have a power that no one else is ever going to have. And the Epstein doc speaks to so many different things. And there were, so there was the two things that jumped out at me were the corruption in the legal process and the power that, that rich people have, which drives me insane. Um, although I would love to be in that, in that club. I would love to be rich. Um, I think I would do really amazing things with my wealth and with my life. I don't think I would do anything terrible. So I, I think that money brings power and freedom if you use it, use it in the right way. And I think I'm capable of doing that, but I don't think I'm in danger of ever being rich. Although, by the way, I'm getting my next point is I am monetizing my YouTube channel now. I think I've, I think I've hit like $3, so I'm on my way. But the other thing that jumped out were the famous names that were associated with Epstein. Alan Dershowitz, oh boy. Um, got some explaining to do. Uh, Bill Clinton got some serious explaining to do. Prince Andrew, yikes. It's scary. When you see the doc and you see the data and you hear the witnesses <clears throat> and then you hear the denials from these people, Prince Andrew's denial was just so horribly awkward and terrible that you just can't not help to think that there's something there. And Clinton had apparently been around uh, Epstein many, many times. They have flight logs and witnesses, and his he just did a blanket, I was never there, I don't know anything about this kind of thing. And it's just kind of horrifying. 
And Dershowitz, you know, said, I dare any of these people to come out publicly. And then the, the woman, the witness says, you know, this happened. This is this happened here. It happened here. It's definitely worth seeing, but it's horrifying because it, it does not bode well for our system. And um, and it was such a terrible thing. But um, it's isn't it funny how we watch things that we know are going to be terrible, but we do it anyway. But I guess if we come out educated and we come out wary and we come out holding those accountable, those who are complicit are responsible. So uh, it's it's a good metaphor for our entire government and culture at the moment, unfortunately. Okay, point number three is, yep, uh, you know what? I might not be talking to you much longer because I am monetizing my YouTube channel. So I hit whatever requirements are there to monetize your channel. I hit those. I think it's like a 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 viewing hours. So 4,000 hours of your time were spent on my YouTube channel. So you get this email from YouTube that says, hey, we're reviewing your site, and we're going to see if you're okay to monetize. I thought that would take forever. It didn't. It happened, and they said, okay. And I just went on there, and it said, do you want to turn on monetization? And I, I said, yes. Now, I'm 51. I just started. Am I going to crack YouTube? Am I going to crack the algorithm that controls YouTube that's going to make me a superstar, and I'm going to make a bunch of money off of YouTube? That is highly, highly unlikely. However, my goal with YouTube is to learn about the platform, to learn how it works, and to learn how not to use the platform. Like I know, for example, if I want to increase my traffic, I know exactly what I make movies about. The problem is I don't want to make movies about that. It's boring, and there's 10,000 other people doing that, and it's a dumb conversation. So I don't care what my numbers are, and it's a liberating thing to come into a platform like YouTube and just say, I don't really care. People have written in all kinds of suggestions. You should do this. You should do that. I can't believe you were meant. You know, one person said, you can't mention politics on YouTube. You can't do that. You know, you're going to, your, your followers are going to be impacted. I was like, and, and then he said, unless you don't care. And I wrote back and said, I don't care. I don't care. I'm, I would never allow YouTube to have the power over me to create content that has to fit a certain norm to build traffic so that they can sell more ads. That's not right. But I know a lot of people who would benefit from having YouTube channels. And they're reluctant. They're either scared or they're lazy or they don't understand it or they don't really think that it would be something that would be viable for them. But I know already for a lot of these people, it would be a great thing. 65% of all YouTube traffic is outside of the United States. So my, my communications with YouTubers at this point, every morning in my inbox, I have emails literally yesterday was India, Germany, Brazil, um, Costa Rica, there's people all over the world that I'm emailing with now, and that's a pretty cool thing. So when I, now, when I, if I learn about monetization, how it works, what are the expected sort of numbers, uh, how can you really fine-tune this, all the different things that I'm using, I don't use that for me. That's not a me thing. That's a you thing because I can turn around and say to so-and-so, you're out of your mind. You should be doing this YouTube thing. No, you're not going to live off the the proceeds, but it's going to put your work in front of a demographic that's never going to see it otherwise. So that's why I monetize the channel. Uh, if I, you know, if I do get rich, uh, it's going to be ugly. No, I'm kidding. I'm never going to get rich off YouTube. Okay. Point number four is AG23 is live online. So ag23mag.com, you can now buy copies of the zine. And also, I want you to notice something on there, and this is not a plug for you to buy buy something, but it's a part of our plan for the future, which is we now have a merchandise line, although line is, is kind of a stretch at this point. It's a single t-shirt. There's a men's version and a women's version. They're made in the U.S. They're designed in-house. They're 25 bucks. And get this, 15 bucks of every t-shirt ordered goes towards the microgrant program. So we're, we're going to create micro grants, which are somewhere between 500 and 1,000 bucks. And these are designed for assistance on a project. It's, it could help someone start a project. It could help someone end a project. It could offer, it could offer them a plane ticket. They could rent equipment. It's not, it's not enough to, like, cr to support an entire project, but they're helpful monetary infusions for someone to do a project. For example... Um, I have a friend who's doing some really cool artwork right now, and I would love to find a way to factor that into a project that we are dreaming up for issue three of AG23, which would be a collaborative project between the AG23 staff and then 
maybe someone that we give a micro grant to and bring in. So like he could use a thousand dollars or seven fifty or even five hundred to buy art supplies, to buy paper, to buy whatever he needs to make his artwork. Sure, it's not you know completely a sustainable thing. This is on top of if the work is featured in the zine, you get another five hundred dollar collaboration stipend. So it could be good, and it's something that we are excited about trying. I was blown away that we're giving, and when I say we, I have nothing to do with Beyond. I don't work for Beyond. Uh, at all. I was amazed. I thought maybe we would have like a dollar or $2 from a t-shirt that would go. And were they were able to do 15 bucks per. And I was like, uh, that seems like a lot. And Rick, who's the director of Beyond said, I'm not screwing around. Like if we're doing this, we're doing this. Let's do it and see what happens. So we're going to build out the um, the merchandise line. If there's some, something you'd like to see or interesting thing, then by all means suggest it because I honestly have no idea what we can do on the merchandise line. I don't work for a clothing brand, so I don't really know. Anyway, that's exciting. There's a lot more coming with AG. I'm actually going to work on the first film about AG later today, just sort of a recap of how it came to be and why we th- I think it's an interesting thing. It's certainly the most different and unique collaboration I've ever had in 11, almost 11 years at Blurb. I've not had anything remotely like this. So I want to break down why and how it came about and what we're trying to accomplish in the future. And I'm also going to begin doing a film about each contributor because of why we like their work, why we think it's important, why we wanted to support them. And then hopefully they can then take turn around and use these films for their own benefit. Okay. Point number five is I just want to tip my hat to the photographers who are out covering COVID and not just the pros. You know, I have a lot of friends who are pro, especially documentary reportage, photojournalists who are out um, covering this kind of thing. And they're, you know, they've been doing this forever. They've covered wars and famines and politics and, and natural disasters and world news events for decades and decades. And so for them, it's a slight modification, but they're, they have their networks and systems in place. They have avenues where this work can go out, where it's going to be published, where it's going to be supported, et cetera. But there's a whole nother level <clears throat> of photographers covering COVID, and that's the, the amateurs. And I have to say, I've already seen work from amateurs from COVID that is scary good, like really good and scary in the sense that they're working in, in environments that are not safe. You know, they're working in hospitals. Uh, someone, someone, I do not remember who it is because I get, I get so many emails now. Someone sent me a link the other day to a, a Google Docs thing. And he said, look, you know, I'm starting, I'm, I'm new to photography, but these are some of the images I made of COVID. And I was like, wow. And the thing is, they're historical. They will get stronger with time because there's so much work flooding the market right now in regards to COVID. But this stuff is moody. It's important. It's historical. And it's dangerous. And so I just want to tip my hat for the people who are taking time to do that. And also just words of caution that this is a, a real deal disease. It's not something you want to, you want to mess around with. And dying for an image is not cool. Exposing yourself and then in turn exposing other people is not cool. So as long as you're careful and you're taking precautions, then you know power, more power to you because this is a unique time in history. And these pictures are going. I could I can definitely see books in the future for sure. Multiple books that will document sort of the the beginning and, and end of of, uh, of COVID. So anyway, I tip my hat. Okay, so point number six is about photography. And it speaks to something that I see all the time that speaks to a certain subset of photographer. And someone wrote me the other day and said that, was asking me what I do when I lose my motivation. Okay. Now this is, is kind of astounding to me. What do you do when you lose your motivation? Oh, I've lost my motivation. I just can't get motivated. I can't, whatever. Someone called me the other day and said, uh, are you bored? And I, I just was like, um, how do I put this politely? F no, I'm not bored. I don't remember the last time I was bored and I've never ever once in my life not had motivation. I don't get it. And what it, and the reason why so many people are telling me this or writing me emails and asking me how to remedy this is they've never made work for them. They're only making work for an external audience. These are people who grew up in the internet world In the social media world where everything has, it's a yo-yo. Everything has that yo-yo effect of it doesn't matter until I've got it online and I'm checking those, that like box, that feedback, those idiotic one word comments. 
they don't know anything else. And so when that dries up or that levels off or that gets to the point where they can no longer physically handle doing that, suddenly they don't have motivation. They don't know because they have absolutely no understanding who they are as a human being. If you have a grasp of who you are as a human being, who are you, what do you believe, and how do you feel about those beliefs? Those are heavy questions, right? That is not something that you look at an Instagram and hit like. When someone says to you, who are you, what do you believe, and how do those beliefs make you feel, that's something that takes a while to answer. And photographic or photography in general is an extension of that. Who are you with a camera? What is your purpose? What are you trying to say? What is your goal? What is your motivation? What's the end game? A huge percentage of online photographers have no clue. They have absolutely no idea because, again, this goes back to me on YouTube. I didn't go into YouTube waiting for the algorithm to tell me who to be. I know who I am, and I will under no circumstances allow the algorithm to influence me or dictate who I am and what I'm doing. I already know who I am. I know what I believe, and I know how I feel about those beliefs. So I'm 51. I made a huge amount of mistakes. I, I had false starts. I failed. I fell down. I made countless errors along the way. You know, I felt my, I felt, what, what's the, um, oh, I was going to say some horrible joke analogy. I caught myself before I uttered it publicly, but analogy of like, you know, making, I made a lot of mistakes, right? And so that's how you find your roadmap. The roadmap, roads are, <laughs> the roads are paved with bones. And so when people ask me about motivation, or if you're about to ask me about motivation, or you're asking yourself, this goes, this, this means put the cameras down and put everything else down and get a piece of pen, get a, get a piece of paper and a pen and think about that. Who am I? What do I believe in how I feel about those beliefs? And then work backwards and you will no longer have any issues about motivation. Okay. This is another photo related thing before we get to SpaceX and NASA. Okay. So I, I was on my bike this morning, freezing. I was literally banging my hands on the handlebars, thinking my fingers were going to turn black and fall off by the time I got back home, right? I, I'm a wuss in cold weather, so, and it was windy, so I got a whipping wind out of the northwest, freezing cold, and my hands were like little tiny bricks of ice. And so I'm riding along, and I thought about this because, so a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with someone, photographer, and they said, they said to me, quote, I hate everything. You know, I, I did this and this, I did this and this, but quote, I hate everything. Now, this was a term, an expression that I never heard prior to the internet. So when I was coming up in photography school in the late 80s and I was printing in the dark room and then I went to UT Austin and whatever, 1990, 91, 92, we didn't have the internet, obviously. We had newspapers. Everything was slow, methodical. It was awesome, by the way. Way, way better in some ways than what we have today. But... I'm not golden age, golden aging isming you right now, but that's basically what it is. So there was a lot about that time frame that I really I look back on and say, man, I wish we could pull some of that into the future. But the internet brought us everything, and so it it brings everything to everyone at all times. And what happens is we get jaded. And this is not the first photographer to tell me or use this expression. I hate everything. But it's a testament to the internet, it's a testament to social, it's a testament to the industry, and it's a testament to the psyche of humans in what's happening in the internet age. So it, it's astounding. And my word of warning here is, if you are finding yourself drifting towards that, that definition or that funnel, you've got to do everything in your power to get out of it immediately, because it is a disease. When you are the I hate everything crowd, and these, this applies, you know, I hear it with bookmakers looking at blurb, you know, oh, I hate the, I quote, I hate the glossy covers. I hate the paper type. I hate the software. I hate this. I hate that. You could give them free books endlessly with every material they would ever want and gold bars on the side just for sport. And they would still hate, right? That's, that's what the internet has brought us, that there's nothing is ever good enough. It's not fast enough. Another thing that's happening right now is that shipping uh, has been influenced all over the world because of COVID. So not only timeframes, but expenses, um, customer service accounts for every company that I've reached out to. I just tried to reach out to Dodge this morning. Their customer service is not good. Um, it's COVID, right? I, am I going to go online and hate on Dodge because their customer service is slow? No. 
I'm not. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, right? I'm an adult. I'm somewhat responsible. I'm somewhat mature. And, and I can see outside of myself that there is a larger thing than Dan Milner on the planet. There's a culture, a society, humanity, the earth itself. I am not the singular focal point of what's happening. So these I hate everything people are really, really hard to be around. But I'm telling you, it is a disease. And when it seeps in, it is really hard to get out. So if you are finding yourself in that path and you are hypercritical of everything, and God, the faces that are flying through my brain right now of photographers that I know all over the world that fall into this category, it's really hard. You have to get out because that cancer creeps out from you into other people in other places, especially if you're on social or online. It's like a, it's a brush fire that goes out. And there's no, po- there's no place for it in the world. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. You know, am I, if, let's say, for example, you know, I got a recall on my Dodge van, right? The shifter cable has to be replaced. And so, you know, am I upset? No. Have I had recalls on pretty much every single other vehicle I've ever had in my entire life? Yes, uh, multiples. It's a part of life. Am I going to trash Dodge? Think of all the good people in the world that work for Dodge or Chrysler or Daimler or whatever. Think of all the people out there whose livelihood depends on it. Why would I hate on Dodge? Right? So I get recalled. Is that a problem? No, I'll take it to the dealer when I get an oil change and they'll fix it or they won't fix it. I don't care. It's a, it's a car. It's a metal piece of metal that I ride around on. So that's my point is let's just be a little better than that. And if you, fi- if you ever find yourself about to utter the phrase, I hate everything, stop. Because trust me, the people on the receiving end are going to want nothing to do with you for the rest of your life until you come out of that cycle. So that's my public service announcement for the day. Okay, let's move on. Point eight, holy crap, SpaceX. So I have to admit something. I didn't really know anything about SpaceX. I did not know anything about the fact that we were about to put two humans in space again. I didn't, I wasn't paying attention. I don't follow it. I'm busy. I'm doing other things. I'm producing stuff every single day for a variety of different reasons. I do not have time to spend my time surfing internet news sites. Although I love space. I love NASA. I love the history. I love the parts, the machinery, the geeky scientists with their pens and weird haircuts. I love all of it. So I come home. I don't remember where I was. Oh, I think I went up north for a day. I come home, and I I check my phone for some reason. No calls, no messages again. And uh, they're like five minutes to launch. And I'm like, really? Somebody's launching something? And then I start watching. And I'm on my phone, and I have my phone turned on the side here in the kitchen table, and it's leaning against like a tortilla or something, whatever I'm eating. And my wife and I are huddled over my phone like idiots when we have a a computer screen like five feet away. And I go, oh, my God, they're going to shoot these two guys into into space, and this is like the first time there's going to be humanoids in the middle of this rocket. And my head immediately just goes, oh, God, you know, because I was in middle school when Christy McAuliffe and the Challenger blew up. And a teacher at my school was an alternate to go on the shuttle. And um, I, st- of course, have that etched in my brain. And also the second time the shuttle uh, exploded on reentry over Texas. So my, my head, my thought, my heart is like, oh, please, God, does, you know, there's so much coverage now. Please let this go well. I don't know anything about this merger between SpaceX and NASA. So I kind of put NASA on a pedestal. But a friend here in town had a really good point. So when I mentioned this to a friend the other day, he was like, I am so pissed. And I was like, what are you talking about? I am so pissed that we're still spending money on this when we could be using that same money to do things here on Earth, you know, education, prison, prison reform, police reform, et cetera. I get that. It is, it is a totally valid point. And so let's just move that aside and, and act like it doesn't exist. So we go to SpaceX, and five minutes, and I'm laying there, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to watch this thing. And it takes off. And I'm thinking, oh, God, cool, please don't blow up. And it doesn't blow up. And not only does it not blow up, but it goes up there, and you're watching this whole thing, and it's like amazing coverage, right? The spacesuits that they're wearing look like Armani. They're just perfect. You know, they look so cool compared to, even though the old ones were, were definitely cool, these are like modern. You know, you could wear this on Rodeo Drive, and no one would bat an eye. Then the whole first stage of the rocket booster, I think it's called the Falcon, or I don't know if I probably have all these terms wrong. Anyway, this thing breaks off and you're like, okay, cool. It broke off. It's going to fall into the ocean and get wasted forever. And then the capsule's going to keep going, hopefully. But this, the, the camera on the first part is still on. And I'm thinking, well, that's weird. And then the announcer comes on and says, okay, 
Now the first stage of the rocket will return to Earth and land on the drone ship. And I was like, and you see the little wings pop out from the side, and the wings are articulating back and forth, and there's little white puffs of jet, like you would, like little white puffs of air, like you would see in a science fiction movie. And I'm, I literally had to stop myself and say, wait a minute, did he just say that that thing is going to return and land on a drone ship? And I was like, I got a D minus in college algebra. There is no possible way that that is going to work. I know because I'm basically a mathematical genius, and it's going to land on a drone ship. And, and then I realized that's, that, that is exactly what he said, and that is exactly what's going to happen. And even though the feed cut out for like two seconds or five seconds because you know that there's a chance that the thing could crash and sink the drone ship, and that would probably look bad for PR. And then all of a sudden, there it is, and it landed on the drone ship. When that happened, all of my doubts went away. I was like, this is pretty incredible. But there's two other points I want to make here, which are about fashion. So... I'm watching this, and you from the control center, you have a NASA technician and you have a SpaceX technician, and they're right next to one another. And I don't know if you noticed this or not, but did you notice the way that they were dressed? The NASA guy looked a little disheveled. He had the white lab coat on, unzipped, and like a golf shirt underneath and a weird haircut. And maybe he was using like a 10-year-old PC laptop. I don't know. I'm sort of I'm, I'm projecting that. And the SpaceX guy looked like a kid at Google at lunch, right? When his T-shirt, it was more fitted. He had a cooler laptop. And I was like, that, that's really fitting. But the one part that stuck out at me, and I think his last name is Cassidy, and I'm not bashing him, and I probably have the name wrong. There's a guy in the International Space Station who's the one who's doing all the tech to get the space station ready to accept the capsule or whatever it is, and he's going <clears> to <throat> pressurize and depressurize, and he's getting it ready, and he's floating around in the zero-gravity atmosphere, and he's flinging around in front of the camera, and he's in front of the camera for a long, long time. And he's wearing, this is where we go sideways, SpaceX. He's wearing a, a, a golf shirt, short sleeve golf shirt, two sizes too big. That's strike one. He's got it tucked in to khaki shorts, strike two. Three, he's wearing a belt, strike three. Four, he's wearing white socks. And I'm thinking the entire world is watching you, and that's what you chose to wear. So, yes, I know, geeky, you're on the International Space Station. I'm sure wardrobe changes are challenging, and um, you may not have, like, a tracksuit and a medallion, but anything would have been better. He looked like a caddy, like, at the, at the golf golf thing, and that's all I could think about. I was like, he's literally in space about ready to accept a capsule to depressurize and pressurize so that he can bring in the, the cosmonauts or astronauts, and he's wearing a, a golf shirt and khaki shorts. So I was a bit alarmed at that. That was the only sort of swing and a miss that I think SpaceX and NASA did. Otherwise, I think it went pretty well. Okay, let's move on. Point number nine is just a mention of something. Uh, like I said, I got a recall on the Dodge. Uh, the last vehicle I had had two or three recalls. So this is only the first one. I'm kind of amazed. And it's a Dodge. I'm not expecting it to be, you know, 1980 Toyota pickup that runs forever with no problems, but it got me thinking about like the greatest cars of all time. And I have two that jumped out in my head that are legendary vehicles that if I could buy today, I would. Uh, one of them in particular, I would certainly buy. And the second one I would probably not buy, but I would consider buying it if I was in the market for a car. And we just don't make anything like this anymore. Everything we make now in the vehicle space, for the most part, is wildly sophisticated with you open the hood and it looks like uh, it looks like Radio Shack. You know, there's just wires and cables and whatever. You go back to a 1985 Chevy pickup and you open the hood, you could sleep in there. There's so much room around the edges. It's simple. There's like four parts total. You're like, oh, that one broke. Let's replace it. And then the thing would just go and go and go and go. I have a friend here in town who has a 96 uh, Chevy Blazer with 245,000 miles on it, and he beats the living hell out of this vehicle, and it is all original. That does not happen anymore. You you look at a car today, and you're like, it has every every doohickey and gizmo and electronic and this and screen and preview, and the transmission leaks at 30,000 miles, right? Because what auto manufacturers do is they have study groups and they have data where they say the average owner of a vehicle keeps this car for exactly 27,000 miles. So then they turn around to the part designers and they go, design me a part for 30,000 miles. 
So why put why make a part that'll last for 200 when we can cheap out and go 30 because we know this person's going to turn it in and it's going to become a used car and then all bets are off. So that drives that that drives me insane. That is one of the most wasteful things. And how do I know this happens? Because I talked to part designers for some of the major brands and said, is this happening? And they said, absolutely. In fact, at one point in my life, I was driving a little mini Blazer when the Chevy S10 Blazer came out. I had about 25,000 miles on it. And I ran into a part designer for GM. This was way back in the day. And I told him what I was driving. And he said, is it leaking oil yet? And I said, no, why would you say that? And he goes, well, because we designed that for about 30,000 miles. And sure enough, I got home and looked underneath my blazer and it was leaking oil. So that was a car that was just, you know, in and out of the shop relentlessly. Thankfully, it got stolen so many times. And then finally, they stole it, stripped it and chainsawed the radio out of the dashboard. And it was like an AM FM cassette player. It was terrible stock and they still chainsawed it out of the dash. And thankfully, I didn't have to drive it anymore. But the two cars that jump out at me that were legendary are the Volvo 240 Wagon, which is like we used to call it the mini hearse, and also the Toyota Cressida. Now, the Cressida was like a strange model that if you went anywhere else in the world, the Cressida was like taxi cabs. Um, in Cambodia in 96, a lot of the taxis were Toyota Cressidas, believe it or not. Um, and the Volvo 240 Wagon, <clears throat> which my family had when I was in middle school, this is one of my all-time favorite cars. We had a five-speed manual transmission, silver with a black interior. I absolutely loved this car. My mom, once in Wyoming, got it totally airborne, all four wheels, and just nosedived it into the ground, which was the beginning of the end for our particular model. And what's funny is I was in the back seat, and as we're approaching, they were replacing a culvert on a rural road, and they had not. They had basically just piled dirt over the top of a culvert. They'd made an enormous ramp. They forgot to bury it. So the person in the passenger seat was like, uh, Kara, you might want to slow down. Kara, Kara, you might want to, Kara, Kara, ah! And then the car was like, I just remember looking out the windshield at the sky and then out the windshield at the ground. And so it was a full-on nosedive. But that car lasted forever. You still see 240s on the road. You even see older models of Volvos on the road. The new Volvos, not so much. You may get to 200000 but you are going to be in the shop, and you're going to pay a lot for expenses. But I still love Volvos. And the Toyota Cressida. Those are two. There's, there's others we can touch on at other times, but those are the ones I wanted to hit now. Okay, part, point number 10, and we've only got a couple here left. Point number 10 is um, my, my, the title that I gave this point was Kill Your Television. I don't remember if you—some uh, of you might remember— Back in the 80s, I think, is when this first started. You started to see bumper stickers that said, kill your television. And I remember as a kid, because I grew up in a TV, in a, almost a TV-free household. You know, we lived in the country. We were always outside. There was very little TV. We didn't have cable. It was like, you know, three channels of black and white fuzz. Wild Kingdom, obviously. It was the pinnacle of my television life. But for the most part, my parents were like, look, don't spend your time in front of a screen. Go out in the world. And so I got lucky. And... My mom's older. She lives alone. She's watching a lot of TV now, and I can see the sort of deterioration that it's causing for her, her, her ability to focus, you know, hold conversations, her ability to read is really dropped off because there's so much television in her life. And it got me thinking, you know, that this is the Internet has, has atomized that loneliness. It's atomized attention. It's atomized our ability to focus on anything. And so my sort of word of warning here and suggestion is to, to not just, I'm using the kill your television as a springboard to really try to reemphasize the point that spending your life on the internet, especially when you're in quarantine, if you're in lockdown still and you're surfing the web all day long, watching YouTube and watching a bunch of films you don't need to watch, it's actually physically deteriorating your body and your brain. And it's, uh, it's not cool. So Let's just move on, right? Let's just uh, get a notepad, get a pen, read a book, call a friend, whatever it is. Anything is better, better than that. And this is a conversation that I have to have with my mom every single day. I just got off the phone with her before I started this podcast, and I said, you know, this is not good. Like I said, for your, for the situation that you're in, a television and the internet is the worst possible things that you could be engaging with because they are basically atomizing everything about your body. And that's not good when you're thinking about someone who needs to speak, think in long form. Okay. So this is point number 11 is also about photography. And, uh, I had a call the other day with someone and they were asking me about putting, how to become a professional. And, you know, I got to be a professional, got to be a professional. I just kept kind of politely trying to ask why you would want to do that. Because the vast majority of photo shoots that I see happening and, and assignments that I hear friends and colleagues getting uh, 
I look at now and say, that doesn't look fun at all. That looks pressure filled. That looks like it has the, the budget's not there. The time is not there. They're never going to use this in the way that it should be used. They're difficult to work with. It might take you forever to get paid. You might have to sign a contract. I just look at it and I'm like, the vast majority of commercial photography shoots I see look terrible. I would never, ever, ever want to do them ever again. And so just be careful. If you're putting yourself into the funnel of professional, just expect to be compromised. The only people that I see who aren't compromised are in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They've been doing this a long, long time. It's not to say that things are perfect. It's far from it. But they at least have enough power and control to be able to, to, to hold their position in line with clients, with usage, with payments, with budgets, etc. Most of the photography assignments I see today are not. They're just not. They don't look fun at all. So I just watched a documentary about Formula One racing. It's on Netflix. There's two seasons. I thought it was actually really well done. I don't know anything about Formula One racing, but what I do know now is it's completely and utterly absurd. And there is some weird thing about it that I'm completely attracted to. And I thought to myself last night, I just finished the second season and I thought, okay, and I watched it to learn camera angles, uh, cuts, transitions, interviews, lighting, you know, I'm just trying to figure out ways of becoming a better filmmaker. And so I thought, all right, here's a doc. Um, I don't know anything about Formula One, so maybe I can learn something. And it was interesting. And it's it's a truly uh, the UN of sports. All the drivers are from all over the world. You know, all the languages. There's a lot of style. There's so much money. There's an absurdity to it that's just that's just crazy. And I think I've been to one Formula One race in my life. But I thought to myself, man, would I love to cover Formula One? I would. I would absolutely love to cover Formula One. I would love to do an entire season, whatever there are, 12, 15, 20 races. They're in, scattered all over the world, Canada, the U.S., Europe, Asia, uh, Australia, great cities, amazing tracks, just uh, characters all over the place. And I thought, I would love to do this. But here's the problem. If I covered a year of Formula One, I would cover it with a Hasselblad and one lens and a bag of Tri-X. And... Ideally, I would have an assistant, and all the assistant would do would be hang out during the day, and I would shoot film all day long, and at the end of the day, I would hand the film to the assistant. And that part of the process, the post, the scanning, the processing, scanning, delivery of those files on the FTP would be handled by someone else. That would be ideal. Now, I would be involved, obviously, but someone else would be handling that. So all I would have to do is shoot with a Hasselblad and one lens and a bag of Tri-X. And the truth is that there is no way in hell that anyone would ever assign anything remotely like that. And especially to someone like me, who's not involved in F1, who doesn't know anyone, you know, has no connection to that, that is never going to happen. So I just look at it and I think, well, I'm never going to shoot Formula One. Because to get into that and allow that industry or those brands to dictate what I'm doing would be miserable. Because you would probably be putting in 20-hour days to produce average work because of all the BS and bureaucracy and red tape and social and immediacy and deadlines and all the crap that we invent to, like, complicate things. At one point, there is uh, one of the drivers is being interviewed by a journalist, and there's a handler with the driver. And I detest most people who work as handlers. They are not nice people to be around. They are manipulative. They are driven. They are condescending. And this kid is handling this driver, and it is so rude. The way he's talking to the journalist, if I was the journalist, I would have either done two things. I would have just said, do I, do I want my career? If not, I'm going to reach across the table and throttle him. Or two, if I was more mature, I would just say, look, I'm not going to waste my time because you're a manipulative little jerk who's trying to control the narrative. I'm trying to interview a driver about driving a car. How complicated is this? We always magnify and turn these into like life or death scenarios. Handlers are the worst. PR people often are the worst to be around. So, but man, would I love to shoot Formula One. It just looks fantastic. And with a Hasselblad, you know, I mean, people would see it and they'd be like, what is that? It would be intriguing. You could weasel your way in maybe. Uh, but the other thing is too, and this cements the idea that this would never happen, is you would have to have total access. You'd have to have access to the paddock, the teams, all of those places. I, you know, when they're working on the car, yes, you're not going to get in the way. You have to be a professional. You have to know what you're doing. You have to know where to go, where not to go, and when you can push that and not push it. And, you know, you could die. I've seen... You know, there have been stories of people covering auto racing and those tires fly off a car. I remember covering a race in Arizona, Daytona, 
and I was right up against the fence on the infield, and it's a chicken wire fence between me and a car going 200 miles an hour. And I'm like, if his uh, rearview mirror flies off and comes through the fence, I'm dead. So I get the liabilities things, but how cool would it be for them to assign somebody to do that? It would just be absolutely fantastic, and it'll never happen. So let's move on. Point number 12, very quickly, is um, Scott Galloway. For those of you who don't know who Scott Galloway is, he's a uh, marketing instructor at NYU in New York. Uh, he's a pretty interesting cat. Go to YouTube, search Scott Galloway, and listen to him talk about the, edu- the modern education industry in America and what's going to happen with COVID. Uh, he's also really interesting to listen, talk about marketing. He's kind of uh, irreverent. He's funny. He's straight to the point. He's a bit loud. Um, but he's got a really interesting perspective on a lot of this stuff. And it's terrifying, for especially for second-tier schools and for Ivy League and sort of how what American education has, has been about. And the reason I'm bringing him up is I think when I look around at the ills of our society and what's happening, whether it's response to COVID or it's the protest movement or police reform, Everything starts with education, and our education system needs to be dismantled and rebuilt, and that's not an easy thing, and it's connected to a lot of other industries that are also also faltering, so it's not a, a simple solution, but we've got to improve our education because as a whole, in terms of first world countries or developed countries, we are lagging so far behind in so many ways, and it shows every single day when you when you tune into what's happening in the world and you hear statements being made that are racist statements or ignorant statements, and it most often traces back to a bad education system. So Scott Galloway has an interesting take on this, and it's worth listening to. Last point is that um, COVID, you know, we've seen and heard about a cycling explosion over the past couple of months of people buying bikes. The box stores are sold out. REIs are sold out. Bike, local bike stores can't get enough bikes, et cetera. There's shortages of tubes and tires and parts and stuff, which in one hand is fantastic. That's a, a moving in the right direction. Sadly, it came because of COVID and not because of common sense. But so People for Bikes just released their, their uh, ranking of 2020 cities for bike, bike-friendly cities. It's very peculiar. It's very odd because last year, if I'm not mistaken, Boulder was number one, and now Boulder is way down the list. And I can't remember who's number one, but it was kind of a surprising city. And the top 10 cities, you're like, what? Like, how could this possibly be? It's almost like they accidentally mixed up the list. So I'm looking around, and there's like some cities on there that you would assume, Long Beach and Portland, Oregon, and Fort Collins, Colorado, and Missoula, Montana. You know, these are sort of forward-thinking, bicycle-friendly. Washington, D.C., there's a ton of people that ride in the city. You know, can and it's based on things like, can you get around? Is it safe? How many people ride? And what's the network like? There's based on like five parameters. So I, sadly, decided to punch in New Mexico. And I was like, uh-oh, brace, brace for the gut check, brace for the neck punch. And uh, on a ranking scale of five, so five being a five-star review, uh, the great city of Albuquerque rang in with a 1.6 and uh, was quite a ways down the line. Like city, uh, L.A. was above it. And I lived in L.A. for five years, and that is not a good cycling city at all, and not even remotely close. I mean, it's even on a motorcycle, it was like death-defying being out on the roads every day. So I was like, ooh, LA is above us. That's not good. And then I made the tragic mistake of punching in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and then saw a resounding 1.4 staring back at me. So man, do we have uh, a chance to improve here. And a state like New Mexico has such an opportunity to put themselves on the map with this. And I think, and again, everything in America has to be filtered through economics. And to turn the state of New Mexico into a cycling destination is a slam dunk. The hard part is the money that's required to get it off, and this has historically been a poor state. So you need the money to do it, and then you have to find someone to cut through the bureaucracy. And bureaucracy, when it comes to cycling, takes on all kinds of forms. You have apathy from the powers that be who are often wealthy people who live in gated communities who do not ride. And so they have no interest in doing this. But we're also an extraction state. And the extraction industry goes above and beyond to try to kill anything to do with either electric vehicles, bicycles, bike lanes, bike education. They don't want people on bikes. They want you in your car burning fossil fuel. So, but uh, economics of cycling and the bureaucracy comes into play with things like insurance. So you're gonna, you want to build a bike lane. Really? Well, who owns the land that it's under? Is it local? Is it state? Is it federal? Or in some cases, is it all three? And who is going to sign off on the insurance umbrella to insure all three, local, state, and federal? 
That happens. I've been in city council meetings, not here, but I've been in city council meetings where I listened to this exact thing happening, adding 50 feet of bike lane for $2 million of insurance umbrella to get that done. That's called bureaucracy. That's called stifling corruption that basically keeps everyone from getting anything done. But so my goal is to get Santa Fe and Albuquerque from the 1.6 range up somehow. And Albuquerque has an amazing opportunity because they have space. Here in Santa Fe, we have a 400-year-old city. It's, it's built around footpaths and animal paths, and it, the houses are incredibly close to the street. It would be impossible to add bike lanes in a city like Santa Fe for most of the locations here. We do have a good trail system. We have a good little paved network through town. Could always be better. But it's also about changing the collective mindset of drivers, of Americans in general. You know, uh, they're defiant. They deserve a car. They, they demand a car. They deserve subsidized fossil fuel. They deserve cheap gas. You know, the, by God, I'm an American. I want to drive what I want. I want to drive 100 miles an hour. No one's going to tell me what to do. That's tricky. So we've got the double-edged sword of bureaucracy and corruption combined with a public whose mindset is not really there yet in terms of cycling. I think it's starting to move there in certain places. And economically, cycling can be a boon to these cities. And that's what you have to get across to the, to the management is, look, if, if Albuquerque becomes cycling destination and you've got hotels and Airbnbs and transportations that allowing you to build a cycling infrastructure, it brings people in because so many people are terrified to ride bikes on the road. If you've suddenly got a safe haven where I can fly somewhere on vacation and don't need to rent a car because I know it's safe to ride a bicycle, there's all kinds of these things. And so, again, this is a complex issue, but it's one I have to think about every day and one that I'm hoping becomes much more of a part of my life in the future. Because to me, why would I, I want to work on things that have an impact, that have the potential at least of, of, of bettering the, my environment, bettering the planet, bettering myself, the people around me, society, cultures, etc. That's all I can hope for. So thanks for tuning in this week. I've got yet another phone call to make, believe it or not. And uh, I got to wrap this one up. I'll talk to you next week.